And we are live. Uh, this is episode four of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson. Uh, we've got Seth Law and a special guest tonight, uh, Evan Johnson. And I have a few things to say about Evan. All good. Uh, so Evan's Evan's worked at Cloud4. Hold on. Cloudflare. I had I got screwed up. The YouTube thing started going and I still have this like weird audio loop. Anyways, uh, so Evan works has worked at Cloudflare, uh, currently works at Segment, uh, huge into the Go programming language. In fact, just today I was asking him some questions. Um, let's see. Evan, anything else you want to talk about with your any projects you've got going on? Anything of note happening? Mm -hmm. Are you speaking anywhere? No, not really. I just applied to Besides SF um, to do a co-talk with a friend, but that's about it. Nice, nice. Seth, you've got um, Hack West coming up in March. Yeah, Hack West in March. Um, if the CFP is open for Besides SF, I, I may actually push something in that direction, Evan. That'd be fun. You've got, you've got about, uh, after this, you're going to have a very long day because it closes at midnight, I believe. Close at midnight? Damn it. <laughs> That's okay. I, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see after a couple more. Yeah, maybe I'll hold off a little bit on the whiskey then. <laughs> <laughs> or submit a really awesome abstract. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, so, it's all good. Uh, I guess I'll kick it off with, you know, I know, uh, so I don't know, a couple episodes ago, we chatted briefly about cores, uh, cross origin resource sharing. And, uh, you know, it was, it, yeah, it, it kind of went off the rails. So we're going to have a more succinct topic discussion about that. Um, I think we, you know, we've got plenty of things to talk about. A lot of stuff happened this week in terms of acquisitions and just interesting articles and things like that. So, um, I mean, Evan, did you want to, I'm kind of, kind of putting you on spot here, but, um, for, for cores, did you want to kind of delve into that a little bit or. Yeah, I can, I don't know who you said, uh, you were breaking up for a millisecond, but I'm happy to dive in, talk about it. Awesome. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. So, I think last week it was um, Rob Fuller was in the chat asking about cores and stuff. Um, wrote a blog was... post about. Yeah, yeah, I think it was either. Yeah, doesn't matter. Sorry. Yeah, some time ago. Uh, it, it was a. Oh yeah, it was two weeks ago, and he was asking about how cores um, vulnerabilities worked, and what types of vulnerabilities exist. Um, so uh, I did some research about a, over a year ago now, last February, where I kind of dug into, so background of what CORS is. CORS is cross-origin resource sharing, and it's a way you can have it in an origin, uh, and an origin is defined as like the full um, host port scheme. Um, but everything after the slash in a URI is not included in the origin. So any change, like you can be at, um, for example, I work at segment app.segment.com versus.com. Those are two separate origins. 
And um, there's special restrictions, same origin policy as every, it's like the bedrock of all of browser security. So that's something that like most people should be familiar with. So cores is all about poking holes in that. And some of the bugs that I've seen it are people just not checking the origin header properly. Um, the big one, I wrote a scanner that's actually available on my GitHub. Um, I'll find out what it's called and post it in the chat right now. But it's, uh, I wrote a scanner that basically looked for, that was like domain name.evil.com where they would respond with all the cores headers that would poke a hole. Basically, I was looking for people who would poke a hole for any origin uh, and like wrote their cores logic wrong. And it ended up being super successful. I scanned the Alexa 1 million and I found uh, over 700 websites that had done their course improperly. And I ended up looking through like, why is this the case? And I found a lot of, like I found rack, rack cores, the Ruby gem uh, had implemented this improperly and there's actually a CVE for it. And I looked, there's actually like a lot of people wrote their cores implementation library off of rack cores. And so I'd send a pull request to them. And I actually, if you're familiar with caddy server, I sent a pull request to the guy who wrote their cores, their cores implementation. And he was like, I just copied rack cores. I'm, I don't know if what you're doing will break my code. <laughs> and I was like, no, just trust me, like just merge this. And uh, it was, it was kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of a big mess. I'm not sure what to, what specific questions I should talk about, but um. yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, well. I, by the way, when we get that link, we'll make sure that it it um, makes its way into this video description uh, for posterity for those that watch it later. I had trouble posting links in the chat. Hmm. Pass it over to Cam. I think uh, he can post them. Right. But Sure. You know, where we just joined, they don't let you post links. It's their it's their course headers. That's the problem, right? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's their course you know, that, that's interesting. The, the whole like uh, like you talk about the misconfigurations, like the rack implementation or whatever it was, right? Um, some of the research I've been doing lately involves a company that scans third parties for like uh, like public risk profile, right? And one of the th one of the pieces of data that they collect is uh, header data. Um, so I've been analyzing it for okay, like how many you know of the million sites that you scan, how many implement you know strict transport security or something like that, right? But one of the interesting things that I've seen, I haven't dug into cores that much, but it's on my list. One of the interesting things that I've seen is misspellings of headers, right? So instead of doing access control origin, they leave off like one of the C's in access. And it's multiple oh types that do this. It's not just like it's it, it, you know, out of a million sites, you've only got ten thousand or so that are actually implementing something properly, and of those, or are actually implementing anything, and then of those, you've got ten percent that misspell it, or they're like, you know, they're you know they're doing something wrong, right? So it's like the misunderstanding that's out there as far as how to implement any of these headers properly is huge. Right, I, it's just it's it, people don't know what it is that they're really trying to prevent, and so 
something that, you know, adding a star there is probably, you know, the developers are like, hey, why don't I do this? Because it makes things easier for me, not realizing yeah. the full, uh, yeah. There's actually special complexity. Uh, so my, the thing that I always preach with cores is like star is good. It's like, and then there's, so if you're an external facing site, star is usually good because um, if you do access control, allow origin star, you're not allowed to send cookies with it ever. Oh. Um, so it auto turns off access control, allow credentials to false. But if you do, so the only problem is if it's like an internal website and you do ACAO star or access control allow origin star and somebody like inside of a VPN goes to it, then you could like uh, bounce into the, the corporate VPN using the ACAO star. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, courses uh, is crazy. The, I remember the concrete question that uh, Rob Fuller had of like, why is it used at all? Like, why is this even a thing? And I kind of agree. I actually think the whole thing needs to be completely rewritten. But I've like tagged Mike West on Twitter a couple times, and it's come up on a on web appsec mailing list, and like it hasn't really gone anywhere. But uh, the I think it all needs to be written. But the reason people do it is the big reason I've found is exactly like the first example I had of like app dot segment dot com, uh, which is like our actual domain for our our actual origin for our website. Is that app.segment.com? Like, if we went and built a new UI completely from the ground up, we'd probably do it at like appnew.segment.com or something. And to have the two be able to talk to each other um, is what a lot of developers and engineers want. And then there's also like the complexity of okay, Disney owns ESPN, and for a long time, ESPN was ESPN.go.com. Mm -hmm. And go.com is like Disney's big site. And so if you want communication between ESPN.go.com and go.com, like that's a, uh, that's just cores is the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only way to bypass that same origin policy. Right. Yep. I mean, I guess, yeah, you, you can kind of understand it from a developer perspective, wanting that ability, but yeah, I, the whole thing honestly sounds like a bad idea, right? Hey, we're gonna we're gonna make this very strict policy that protects everyone, except when we turn something on and behind the scenes you don't know about it, so you won't know if somebody's breaking it or not unless your app yep. stops working, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so <laughs> I'm kind of reading your article. So the basic gist is by modifying your. Um, origin header you were able to get them to reflect back that it's cool to share resources with you with the domain uh you're requesting from essentially like yep. everything's cool which so some you. yeah so some examples of websites that were vulnerable to this um that i'll just happily share it's i believe it's public in my in my repo i posted uh, one of the companies that did have this problem was that I remember was Angie's List, so I'll use him as an example. And I did um, 
on my website, let's just say it was evil.com, I would create a subdomain, subdomain Angie, uh, it was not Angie's list. It was a different company. Anyways, I would do, uh, now, now it's going to bug me, but I would do, uh, that happens to me com by the way, on every podcast. Yeah, stop, stop, it's, yeah, stop disparaging Angie's list. Gosh. <laughs> Uh, oh, we're gonna get all sorts of hate emails. <laughs> sorry, guys. I, I'm sure I just got you sued. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I mean, total. Yeah, this is awesome. By the I way, I'm reading I, this article and I posted it in the. Not to, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, but I did post the article that you wrote into our live event, and I'm just reading it. It's awesome. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I didn't. Uh... I didn't actually get a lot of views and I didn't write the article very well, but one person who read it was, um, I forget his name, James something over at Port Swigger. James Kettle. And yep, James Kettle. And he ended up writing, he ended up taking it like way further than I did and um, like was fuzzing the origin headers. Like he actually wrote a, and he uh, uh, cited me in the blog post that he wrote about this and his got a lot of attention, which I like because whenever bug bounty researchers send his article to me, which is frequently, I can say, Hey, I'm actually cited in this article and this is not a bug. And then I just like close it. So it's pretty nice. <laughs> it's a nice feedback loop there. Right? And mm -hmm. no, <laughs> well, no, that's like, yeah, that's cool. I, I mean, sometime later on, right? I, I'd be interested. Like, I'll dig out the data that I've got from uh, this, you know, risk company, and uh, we may want to compare and contrast. It'd be interesting to do an updated article, and you know, I yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. How many sites did you actually scan? I haven't I looked at the article yet, but so I scanned the full top. one million. Okay, <laughs> just the full one million. Sure, it only took a couple hours, right? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's Go and multi-threaded. It took a uh, couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So now I have other questions about how you didn't get blocked and <laughs> who your ISP was. And, you know, I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a real concern doing research nowadays is just being able to scan that many sites without somebody coming back at you, whether it's your ISP or whoever else. I actually did it from a DigitalOcean droplet. And I think they sent me an email where they were like, hey, can you stop? And uh, I was like, don't worry, I'm done. And <laughs> just shut off the droplet. <laughs> yeah, because you know I've had problems with a little host like that before. I'll spin it up. I start doing something and you know, two hours into it, all of a sudden the, the machine shut off and I've been banned and, you know, I have to promise not to do it again before they turn it back on. Well, we noticed scanning activity. I'm like, oh, it's all port 80. Well, you know, yeah. so yeah, it's kind of a, you know. No, I couldn't do that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's the whole reason I have this VM. So you can shut it off and all my other stuff stays up. <laughs> oh, this is funny. I'm reading this Rat Cores thread. So on, on the, the the GitHub page for Rat Cores and the issue you opened. And it's hilarious because like 
September 26, 2016, you open this. And then uh, Jen's Void is the username. Um, links to a blog post on this, which was inspired by James Kettle, which was inspired by yours. <laughs> so like yeah. between September 26, 2016, and then August, it's almost a full year later, it comes back around. I honestly still think it's an issue that's not getting enough attention where um, there's a lot of these libraries that people have used script or whatever and uh, they just don't it, like the fun, the underlying like um, RFC is like so complicated nobody actually really the whole thing and understands it and uh, that like star is different than a reflected origin name. And uh, that subtlety like trips up every implementation I've seen almost. Um, so I think it's still an issue, um, but I don't know what will happen. I don't know really what to do. Yeah. So I, I mean, in that case, what's your recommendation, Evan, right? If you're talking to the guys about throwing out cores. How do you still provide that same functionality without? Yeah, I don't. I don't have a ton of recommendations on how to rewrite the spec. Maybe I would get rid of this star thing in general. Like I would, so the whole reason for star is um, mostly CDNs with their JavaScript. They want to serve access control out origin star when they serve their JavaScript. And I think that should just be removed and it should be a separate header. And access control allow credentials should like always be on or something. I'm, I'm not sure the details, but I think that part getting stripped out um, would make it simpler. And JavaScript serve true. Yeah. Something and in like case that. anybody's not familiar with a content distribution network, a CDN, uh, basically it's, uh, you can host your assets externally to a CDN. Um, they'll be served fast, uh, quickly. Uh, also, you should get some denial of service protection should get some denial of service protection. And so for you to pull in those, uh, those assets like scripts or whatever, uh, this is what Evan's referring to with, uh, cores, the course policy. Actually CDNs. I mean, I know it's not on our list, but there's that whole Cloudflare, uh, D D Cloudflare, I guess, or however, whatever you want to call it, that other script that came out as well. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that, though. Uh, Cloudflare de-anonymizing thing? Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I was running or against a couple hosts. And basically what is it, it does is it compares um, SSL certificates from mass scans of the Internet against the domains that Cloudflare is serving up. And it's like, hey, guess what? This IP, this IP, this IP, I'll have the same domain and the same, you know, right? SSL cert. So maybe you could just hit them directly and bypass Cloudflare completely. So, you know, it's basically allowing, you know, if you really wanted to perform a denial of service attack on somebody, you could potentially do it this way if, you know, if they are using that same cert. Yeah, that's, uh, that's been a problem for a long time. Yeah. Uh, with Cloudflare. And they've always recommended that you use like an IP layer firewall to block everything that's not one of Cloudflare's IPs, specifically the IPs that come from their CDN network. Yeah. And they, uh, 
they have a new product called warp that will fix that um where warp you run warp and it will uh it it will only allow you to talk to the cloudflare network on your web server um and i'm actually not sure about the implementation details of how that works but it's pretty neat that's like the final solution for them but then it it, it does make all their customers like run this binary on all their servers so it's yeah, not I, ideal yeah I, I mean but i can understand it right like you want that protection you've got to pay for it in more than one way it can't just be all right we're going to route all the traffic that direction and expect to have all the benefit right so but still it was interesting to see you know it, it's a great use case of all the census data or whatever that's out there as far as hey guess what you're still exposed if you're not thinking about this. Yep. Ken, did you play with that at all? I actually dropped off for a little bit accidentally. Uh, I don't know what was going on with my connection, but I think uh, I think I, I think we pissed off Angie's list, and they're after me. <laughs> <laughs> Already, but, that was quick. I know. I'm sorry. We're pretty elite. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I lost track of where we were at, so nothing to add. <laughs> definitely was not Angie's list, by the way. I feel bad now that I threw Angie's list under the bus, but it definitely wasn't them. <laughs> Here, let me, I'll give you the link to that GitHub. You should post that one as well, Ken, while I'm thinking about it. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, it's... <laughs> by the way, I also like the way you titled that issue. Rat cores is fundamentally insecure. <laughs> Bam. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Putting Another a little drama in there, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> that was a little. That's the problem we have. I got a. If you're familiar with Sales.js, um, I got a security warning for Sales.js. I'm not. Uh, they, uh, I, I don't, it's some JavaScript framework, but I was like, I noticed one of the server headers while I was scanning was like server sales JS. And I was like, oh, what's that thing? So I loaded it up and it has like 13,000 stars on GitHub. So it is somewhat popular. And uh, it, uh, it had the same cores issue. Um, I, I got a, I've never gotten, this is my first time getting a node security advisory. So it's not a CVE, but hopefully I have many more to come. Oh, that's awesome. So they actually, they, they took it seriously and were proactive with it and whatnot. So that's awesome. It is very cool. I'm kind of just looking at it right now. A little MVC framework for Node.js. Yeah. Which is, you know, part of what someone was part of the, one of the questions that I figured well, that was, you know, at some point get to tonight um, was around like not necessarily Node.js, but just all the new technologies and how that changes our jobs in terms of testing and looking for security issues, which it does. Yeah, it has. Things well, yeah, maybe we want to answer that email now, right? So. Yeah, and the, I'm going to say your name, so... Brian Gray asked, uh, which was, and that's basically the, the gist. It was kind of like a, uh, oh man. So 
to give historical context to those not familiar, um, when, so like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, um, when you tested an application, it was cool if it had Ajax, right? If it was using Ajax and you're like, wow, this is kind of cutting edge. This is cool stuff. And, um, 2008, 2009, 2010. And the way that you tested a site was mostly depending on if it was like a classic ASP app or a job app or whatever. Um, you pretty much had pages you'd visit. They would, I mean, it's, it's the web, right? So you had some pages that you'd visit. They would have some forms. You'd fill those out, click around the site. You'd look at the robots.txt. And surprisingly, that that actually was useful back then. Not to say that, you know, you shouldn't still look at that, but uh, SQL injection was pretty prevalent. Um, in terms of there being things like CSP to prevent XSS, no issues with that. But Basically, you had pages that were fairly static in terms of they would load and what they loaded was what they loaded. And, you know, you click something and you go to another page and that was all pretty simple. And fast forward to, well, and and as time went on, there were things like Flash and Swift files that came along. Silverlight, if you guys remember Silverlight at all. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) Uh, so things got a little bit more dynamic. There, there were some, you know, new technologies coming along, but really when, um, we started seeing more heavy, heavy use of things like Ajax and JavaScript in general to transform the pages you're testing where we're at now is we've got a lot of these, what we call single page applications. So the front end's built in something like react or Ember or angular and, that is an MVC framework, like just in the JavaScript that loads on your page or on your, uh, when, when you go browse the site, it's just a bunch of JavaScript and it is basically a front end framework. And why they call it a single page app is really what's happening is you're not necessarily loading a bunch of new content to be rendered server side from the um, server. Once you've made that initial load, what you're doing is you're, triggering events by clicking around on the site that then change the local browser's behavior. But ultimately what's happening is there's just calls going off when needed, uh, like RESTful API calls. So you've got basically what I'm saying is most of the, like the front end of the site loads when you initially visit the, the whatever server. And then from there, uh, based off what you do locally, things change only in your browser, but there's calls going off to a server. In theory, that's supposed to be a really seamless uh, experience. It's supposed to be um, quick. And what ends up in practice happening is it's just just a cluster. Usually it's just a terrible experience. It's both a heavy browser experience as well as a heavy, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of calls you're making to the server experience. Um, Those types of apps are hard to maintain. And um, so you've got a whole team dedicated to this and it still isn't necessarily working right. And I can't say that's always the case, but just from even a usability standpoint is what I'm talking about. So now we've got the security side of that, which is uh, we've got these frameworks that um, change just the way that we do testing, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
don't know if that's succinct enough, Seth Evan. That sounds right. Yeah, it yeah, it does, right? Uh, I mean, if you think back to like the 90s and client server applications, it almost feels like we've moved uh, back to a thick client, right? It just happens to be embedded in the browser and it's built on JavaScript as opposed to you know some sort of compiled C application or something that's running as a desktop app. And then it makes calls back to the server, you know, via Ajax calls in the browser as opposed to know whatever RPC calls or whatever we did back in the back in the 90s right um, or even early 2000s right with those client server apps so it makes sense uh, and it definitely changes the way we test it has to right the same thing has happened with mobile is we've had to we've had to come up with new ways to actually analyze those applications right I, I mean Evan from your side you know as far as segment goes, you know, how do you actually view that when you're you are engaging the testers from a hey, you know, we want you to look at our app. How do you ascertain, mm -hmm. you know, the differences there from those traditional apps versus what we have now? My personal opinion is kind of strong when it comes to these death smiling while I say this. <laughs> uh, you have a strong opinion? What? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just think I think React has done a really good job fixing cross-site scripting, such a big like change. And then I think that ever since Ruby, this um, notion of fixing like SQL injection and ha it has made huge like leaps and bounds where now Go has done the same thing with um, like os.exec and a lot of other functions. I think like injection vulnerabilities are like going away and a lot of applications now and I work with developers, I'm just like manually sending curls to their application and like manually checking that off like there's no direct object reference issues and the authentication and authorization stuff works the same. And um, I, the issues that I've seen the most is like SSRF because the world is HTTP now and people send HTTP requests. That's just like half of every SaaS company's job is sending HTTP requests on behalf of their customers. Mm -hmm. Um, and for authentication a, authorization. Well, for, for those again, for those if if anybody's not familiar with server side request forgery, essentially you're, let's say in some way the user can uh, manipulate their input so that the we'll just use fuck it, we'll use Angie's list. We were always talking about it. so. Let's say Angie's list takes input from you, <laughs> and based off your input, they've got a URL. They've got a URL that you give them, and now they're making a request off that URL. Maybe they're fetching a resource. So uh, that's sort of the the basic gist of that vuln. Anyways, sorry. Continue, please. I, no, I mean, I mean that's about it. Yeah, from a manual perspective, I, I mean, that, when when this came up, that was what I wanted to say is that, hey, guess what? Back in, you know, 2010 was like, hey, we ran web inspect, we ran app scan, and we, we were dependent, we were overly dependent on these dynamic scanners. Um, and there wasn't enough 
uh, cycles spent on the manual side of things, right? If anything, uh, you know, using a, a React app or a single page application, it forces me to actually look at the connections that are being made. And I'm more reliant on something like Burp Suite or the proxy and replaying those attacks to actually manipulate what's going on rather than just looking at the UI and being dependent on a dynamic scammer. I mean, a lot of those dynamic scammer scanners are having a hard time understanding what's going on with those JavaScript frameworks and with, you know, with React and other things. But yeah, with those apps. So, yeah, I mean, the scanners are already had a dubious history, um, success, history with success. Um, then you throw in this and that throws off every scanner, right? I mean, every dynamic scanner for, for single page apps specifically. And I agree with what Evan's saying, because in terms of injection with like active record and ORM, and I think, I don't know, we talked about this at one point, but well, cause we were talking about bug bounties and like what, what, if it's not the easy stuff, it's like kind of what you were about to say, Evan, which is, uh, stuff like S SSRF or, um, authorization related things, which means you have to know the app, but, um, where's I going with that? So injection. Yeah. Like I, I can remember my very, actually Dave Ferguson. I remember he's like, kind of like you bastard. Hey. He's my very first test with, um, fishnet. And he, he was with me, um, or we were paired up as remote, uh, like completely owned this site via SQL injection. And now fast forward. And I, yeah, I agree with Evan. I mean, it's not just rails. There's a ton of frameworks that are implementing this pattern that just makes it yeah, far more difficult to introduce SQL injections. It's not possible, but it's far less uh, prevalent in what I've seen. Frameworks are just getting smarter where they know that these issues exist and they don't want to abstract that away from engineers. And um, you should be able to create, read, update, and delete your records without having to think about the safety of your parameters that you're passing to your data store. And so I think a lot of people are just like building that in from day one. And I think that's actually attractive in like helping people get users is like, oh, look, we don't have to think about this security thing. We can just write code again. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's like, I think once Ruby came out with like how Ruby, like just there's, I don't know, I think of NoSQL injection in Ruby, but that's probably not the case. I don't actually write Ruby, but I, I see that it's very tightly coupled with its model to its data store. Um, the yeah, people Node, in Gin and Juice know a lot more Ruby than me. <laughs> no, Node is, uh, in terms of NoSQL injection, I see with Node quite, like, well, mainly because of the way that the data's, data's that's being taken from users is being handled. And if it's passed directly, basically it's easy to take a JSON request, have it as a JSON type and then pass it to like MongoDB. That's easy to do. It's yep. a mistake to, to make. And Brian Gray made a good point and, it, and he, he had mentioned Swagger. And if you're not familiar with Swagger, Swagger's just, uh, God, I'm going to mess this up. But Swagger is a way to properly document your API endpoints. Is that correct? Is that a fair, uh, that's, statement to make. And I think it may have the ability to be tied into burp now with an extension so that I don't know if anybody, if, if you haven't written that somebody should write, or if it hasn't been written that somebody should write that, but I'd imagine someone has. 
where where you could parse those endpoints and then figure out you know get delete put whatever request that it needs to go to which endpoint that needs to go to uh anyway so he um he mentioned serialization taking the place of injection i mean hmm. it I mean, we've seen it, uh, and speaking of Ruby, specifically like YAML, yeah. and we've seen it with just regular marshalling. Um, there's been a couple talks I know in, what year is, what year is this? 2018, so probably, gosh, was it 2016? I think in 2016, there was an AppSec USA talk on it, um, on just Java object serialization, deserialization, deserialization issues. Um, but I've seen it more prevalently. I mean, it's yeah. happening. Was, well, and I mean, this goes. Was the talk? Yeah. Sorry, you go, Seth. No, I was going to say that uh, you know everything that we've been talking about as far as these single page applications and kind of the trends that we're seeing. I know OWASP top ten is on our list. Um, I I just taught a, taught a course uh, on like the OWASP top ten and and was going through the new version, but that's what we're seeing. Like. Deserialization volts are on there now. Um, we're also seeing XSS drops down the list. Uh, like, so it's, I mean, it's still there, but it was number seven instead of number three or whatever it was previously, right? Uh, I mean, there is some recognition in the community and, you know, um, you got to give credit to the guys that came in and kind of stepped up for OWASP and uh, redid that uh, late last year. Um, because they, they did take that into account, kind of what's going on in the community at large and what we're seeing. So we are, I mean, there is some relevance that's there. Um, but the deserialization stuff gets gets to be pretty interesting. I don't know if it's at the level of SQL injection yet, right? Um, it, you know, I, I, I still don't run into it that often, personally, in the apps that I've been doing. But still, a lot of kind of, the bread and butter of the industry is those apps that was written that were written in 2010 to 2014, right? That they're trying to update and things like that. So it's not all brand new. It's not the the new shiny. So it could be that they exist. I, I mean, do you, you know, Ken, obviously you've seen them. I mean, Evan, have you seen a lot of those or is that even popped up where you're at? No. So serialization wise, I think, it's uh, like if you're doing, if you're finding serialization bugs, like it shouldn't, it better not be JSON. It better be like a binary series serialization format like PHP or JavaScript or Java or something. I really haven't seen these at all. I think if you're, I feel like serialization bugs means nobody should be like serializing arbitrary binary objects like you should have like yeah. you should be using cat and proto or something yeah yeah well you're right um, i mean like because serialization when you start talking about like uh pickle serialization or whatever like the reduce functions and things like that that you can include you know that those are dangerous right so so why yeah. are you not just using json at that point well, and circling back, you know, I mean, circling back to tying in pickle serialization and serialization issues and frameworks protecting developers. I mean, Django, like I think Django does a pretty good job in terms of focusing on security. And one thing they did, and I don't, I don't know if it was like 
version. I think it's like version 1.6 or something like that. They, they decided from now on, <laughs> the default is not pick, pickled deserialization for sessions. And uh, Ruby, gosh, has Ruby followed suit? I think, I think the frame, the, I think, I don't know. I have to look at Rails. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. And I work in Rails every day, but um, the default standard has been use JSON instead of something like Pickle or Marshall where you're talking about data turning into objects that can execute code. So Django did a good, pretty good job of that. Um, yeah, Brian's um, asking on chat about how much we actually hunt for it, right? Or if we do. Um, you know, in, in general, in the the bug bounties, I haven't necessarily, right? That's that's probably where I've like I would be looking for it the most. But again, I'm not running into a lot of apps that are using something that looks like serialization or feels like serialization, right? It's your standard J session ID cookie, and I'm not seeing those objects being passed back and forth. I mean, it's very rare that I even run into something like a JWT, right? Well, this is why, I mean, for me, you know, I don't know what, basically, again, looping back to the testing methodology and how it's shifted. For me, you know, I don't prefer dynamic tests anymore. I prefer a combo, uh, static and dynamic. And not even dynamic. Dynamic maybe to validate what I'm looking at, of course, but um, also really helps with testing patching. But I mean, this is when I see those things when I'm looking inside of code, it's easier to find. And I mean, this is, we quickly, we could quickly go down the rabbit hole of that whole conversation that's just played out and old, but you know, static versus dynamic. But I mean, I like to have code for that reason. It's just easy to, to kind of suss those things out versus, you know, here's a URL and some creds. How about it? Yep. So. Yeah. I wonder if you know Brian's got any more uh, questions around that, but you know if we go back to the testing methodology discussion, right? I, I think manual is just becoming more of the the norm, at least for you know serious security developers, right, or security engineers. Um, without it, I, I I don't see how you could actually accomplish it and feel like you gave authentication or authorization a fair shake. And you know, turn to a company and say, "Yeah, you look good," or "No, you don't." I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Evan doesn't, right? You got some strong <laughs> opinion there. No, I agree with you guys. It's like, I if I if there's a lot to find out under the hood, like I look at it from a blue team side or like a purple team side, whatever you want to call it. I have no idea what I'm actually doing. Um, like someone has an API and they want to know if it's secure and I work with them and I'm interested in making it secure, want to pound on the API and like, sometimes it's easier to try it and send some curls and sometimes it's easier to crack open the code and read it and situation is and uh, what is easiest to actually find out if it's secure or not. Yeah. Like I don't really care. I design decisions like avoid binary serialization formats and like all that stuff entirely and then like actually just figure out is it secure is it not in the easiest least amount of work possible so i don't i don't have any strong opinions there actually surprisingly surprising well i have a strong opinion you know what pisses me off what gets it what's a real pain in the ass is when um 
But I mean, let's be honest, it's always been a very manual process with testing, even though you might, you know, have, I mean, Seth, I went with you, I, I believe to, to a school to learn a dynamic scanner yep. for the company we're working for. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty important that you ran that, but ultimately it came, it comes out to manual testing, but what's a real pain in the ass is when, uh, <laughs> Brian, what grinds your gears? I'll tell you what grinds my gears. So when, when, uh, when, and I see this a lot with mobile apps, when they, sign the requests right so that you can't manipulate them so that you can't alter them that's such a pain i mean it, it like and especially because you know you're doing this as someone who's testing like with a limited time frame and so you get you get this you know a apk or you get the uh the uh what's the other one I ipa whatever it is yep. um and you're supposed to go and just do this. And then you get the, yeah, this whole signed request nonsense. And so you like end up spending most of your time trying to get, trying to get a way to have burp like with an extension, modify the request so that you can sign each tampered request outbound. Just don't do that to people that are testing your apps. Don't be that person, turn that stuff off. It's a, it's a nightmare. I mean, that it, it kind of goes to what the purpose of the test is, right? Right. He, you know, do you really want, uh, you know, some sort of security output from this? Do you want to assess the security of the application and find out what the threats are? Or do you just want a red team scenario where somebody knows nothing and they're attempting to exploit you, right? It's the, the old uh, red team perspective that, hey, all we get is a URL and go right? This is our scope and we get to exploit whatever we want. Um, and I think, you know, most of us come from the more of the defensive side that we've done over the years. And we would rather be able to see the code and give you output that actually increases your security than just give you an exercise that says, all right, you were able to respond and you implemented certificate pinning in your application and then required a later version of iOS. So I can't actually manipulate those requests. So good job, I guess, right? Um, I remember one test you were doing, Seth, I think it was you that spent like two or three weeks on Mallory to do a, a mobile test or some nonsense like that, just because some BS around. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, because at the time there was like, we didn't have hooks into all of the different mobile or mobile OSs and I mean, that was the biggest pain that, that you know, hey, I'm going to intercept all the requests and then try to manipulate them. And I have to write regexes and throw them at Mallory. Don't use Mallory. Just just don't use Mallory if you don't have to. <laughs> if you learn one thing from this podcast, that's it. Don't use Mallory. <laughs> that's it. You can just hang up now. It's fine. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah. No, I mean, that, but that goes to all the testing of these, uh, the modern apps. You know, whether it is browser or mobile, it's just, uh, you know, you've got to give your, your prodsec team or whatever you call it, the ability to dig in and look and see what's going on. Um, you know, part of me actually regrets telling all of the mobile developers, hey, implement certificate pinning, right? I, really, it, it does, because I'm like, oh, man, now I have to jump through all these hoops just to actually test, or I have to actually ask you for a build where you disable certificate pinning. I mean, yes, I realize it increases the security of that uh, that flow, um, but then on the other hand, it makes it so difficult to test that 
you've just got to ask for it up front. And I mean, and that's basically what I've started to do. Hey, are you implementing, implementing certificate pinning? All right, I'm going to need a build without that, right? Yes, I can play with Android and try and disable that, or I can play with iOS and, you know, SSL kill switch and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's a mess, right? It's, it's just, it takes time away from the actual assessment of what would actually give you value. So. Yeah. It's like, how clever are you to figure this out and then also test our app and Hey, you have, cause we, we didn't want to pay a lot of money. So we, we reduced scope down to like a week. Yeah. Have at it. Yeah. You're not going to get what you pay. You're not getting what you're paying for. Not at all. So. I didn't realize we were going to get into iOS kill switch, but hey, there we go. So, <laughs> there is still kill switch. <laughs> we always have an absolute app sec, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we always have a list of things we were talking about, and then spears off. And, and and you know, like I was, we were talking before this, uh, before we went live, and like Evan, we got ten minutes left. This, this goes quickly, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Well, let's see. Was was there anything else that Brian asked us? I don't know if it, he's. I think he's been commenting as well. Uh, what grinds your gears? All right. Well, that grinds our gears, but that's because we're coming from a testing perspective. Um, yeah, or my gears at least. Evan, what grinds your gears? Yeah, what grinds your gears, Evan? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what grinds my gears. I don't really have much. Oh. Uh, yeah, wh- whatever like no strong opinions come on we follow you on twitter <laughs> we know there's something in there that's just yeah you high. see me in gin and juice and i have i have many opinions but i guess you have to ask me first and then <laughs> well is there anything specifically going on and actually real briefly i did want to uh just mention so in terms of i don't know somewhat appsec events some just interesting things um so Aspect Consulting acquired by Ernst & Young. Uh, Evan had mentioned that um, CoreOS had been acquired by Red Hat and Gymnasium was acquired by GitLab. So those are kind of the three big acquisitions recently. Uh, I don't know if there are any others that you guys know of, but um, yeah, it was pretty interesting stuff going on, so... Uh, any other news worthy things that we can think of? No, I don't. Yeah. No, I, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, it, it's interesting. You're seeing the, you know, the big four accounting firms, they keep picking up people. I'm sure that's what the aspect acquisition is about is them getting those, getting that talent, right. And probably the client list, but having the talent as well. I mean, if my if my inbox and it's the same for you guys, I know really probably for anybody that has application security in their title on uh, LinkedIn, if it's if the amount sheer amount of recruiting spam that you get is any indication, like the talent, it's difficult to find talent out there. Apparently, I mean, I I think we all know that, but yeah, and so acquiring a company for its talent makes sense. Well, yeah, and I mean, people are going to the big four, right? Sorry, go ahead, Evan. Well, I don't really know what EY is doing in AppSec. Do they do AppSec consulting? I know you guys are from that side of the house. Yeah. More than do. I am. I mean, I've I've run into PwC consultants. I've run into Ernst & Young consultants that, wow. um, you know, big companies are actually going to them that already have that relationship, and they are they're expanding their practice into the 
you know, they've always done kind of security auditing. So it makes sense that they expand into that space. I don't oh, know as works over there doing that stuff. Who does? Arcme. <laughs> <laughs> same okay. code All right. Casey doesn't want to be mentioned uh, but yeah um, name in there but yeah that's kind of one of the things they did mm -hmm. yeah I mean you know coming from the the you know kind of the client side or the commercial side Evan I mean what is your feeling about engaging you know third parties to perform this sort of an assessment I mean I know you use consulting firms um, but mm -hmm. what is it that you're looking for when you talk to those guys? I mean, I, I guess I'm really looking for technical excellence and expertise. And I think the real challenge from my perspective is I've talked to a lot of big companies who do consulting and they provide that service and they're just not good. I've, um, they're just like, I guess, so used to like looking at legacy.net apps and stuff. It's really hard to find a San Francisco tier consultant where they're, it's like our tech, our tech stack is brand new. Like everything is shiny and right out of the box. And I don't think there are many consultants that have that expertise yeah. and have that background. And I, maybe it's like, there's not enough companies who do that yet and they haven't seen it, but it, it feels like I've had, um, like ha had some good luck recently and like I've worked to find some relationships with, uh, consultant firms, luckily through like back channels and stuff in our, in our, uh, our AppSec group. And, but besides that, it's been really hard. Like it's like we're, we speak different languages almost. And then I go in and I like, we had one consulting firm, uh, who came in and they looked and they wanted to charge us an exorbitant amount of money before, uh, because they didn't have a security person to look over what this stuff costs. And I was like, Holy cow, this, this company's like trying to take us for a ride. So I like, they do the assessment. We like work out a price. We work out, we do some scope reduction. We figure everything out even do the bare minimum of what I would have expected them to do. Like, I don't even know if they got our website running, build us 20 days for it. And it's like, it's, it's, I don't think they're, they're just set up for this uh, yet. And I don't think they've, I think a lot of people go through training, like Sigital will train you when you join. And a lot of these big companies will train you when you join. They, train you on like how to run npm run server or whatever or like whatever it is yeah well and uh, yeah i mean when i think about like the big accounting firms getting into the space that's kind of what i expect is hey we're gonna you know take some graduates we're gonna teach them this is security here's a couple of tools and then we're gonna throw them at an app and whatever that client happens to want that's what they're gonna get um, it, I, I have had some success with them going against like cloud um, because they've been trained up by AWS or by Microsoft, right? So they kind of know the ins and outs of that space. But you know, on the tech stack side, I, I, I just question whether or not they, you know, 
that, that team, if they're giving those consultants the ability to go out and actually learn about something like Elixir or Node or, you know, the new, the new shiny that's in San Francisco. So uh, it's just interesting to hear that perspective coming from your side of a, you know, dynamic young company that's trying to push the boundaries. But I don't think, you know, consulting in general, they don't, we don't typically serve that very well because our margins are all on that business that we've been doing for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Ken Toller asked in the chat if I interview consultants first. And uh, I did not interview in this specific horror story. And uh, since I've gone off about it a couple times, but uh, I did not. And that's, I will always interview going forward, I think. But I wonder, like, do do any of these companies have anybody who meets my technical bar? I do feel like a lot of the the niche consulting companies, um, they're 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 getting bought out. You know, they're getting bought out by the by some conglomerate with a weird name that sounds like something from the Illuminati, um, <laughs> Blackstone. Um, but anyway, so. In terms of niche consultancies left, I don't know. You know, it's it's getting few and far between. Yeah, there's. I mean, but there always seems to be new ones that have been created, or you know, or starting, or a couple guys from Ernst and Young or whatever else, you know, decide that they have that they want to push that envelope, right? And so they leave and then start their own thing. So, I, I mean, I think it's just kind of a cycle in the industry. Is you know, all these small companies start. The big companies decide, oh, crap, we need those people. They buy them out, and then the cycle starts over. Right? Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, and, it, you know, a lot of the times the goal is to just get bought out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the business goal, it seems. So, and it's working. Yep. So, yeah, that is a little unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, at times, right? You know, it's. It's it's all the cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. And then those good people disperse to somewhere else, and then we 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 always say AppSec's like a very incestuous uh, community, and it's accurate. It less it's probably a less disgusting way to say that, but it's accurate. We all seem to roll around and end up working with each other for each other, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep, yep. Well, and that's I mean, any industry you find the the good people that you know and that you want to work with, and of course those are the people you're going to hire because you know, you trust them implicitly to do a good job. Um, and you know, people get added to that list all the time, right? Depending on who you run into at a conference or whatever else. So anyway, um, I mean, we, we've hit an hour. Do we want to start a new topic or do we want to, we want to do Yeah. It's really up to you, Evan. Um, cause you're the guest. So is there anything? Hey, I mean, you guys, I've got another beer I can crack. We can do one more. Sure. Um, we keep circling around it, but I think we should just go right into the OWASP top 10. <laughs> I think we should go into it. I think we should talk about this OWASP top 10 thing. I think we should get get into it. And, and uh, you know, to give some history and some context, there were, um, so there were issues put onto, or issues put into a proposed OWASP top 10 because, you know, every few years there's a new OWASP top 10 list that comes out. 
And there were debates around, there were a few things. One, one of them, one of the big issues were the actual topics being supplied. Uh, it was felt that uh, a couple of those topics were, or a couple of those uh, top 10 items were there to favor the RASP companies, right? Um, so there was a lot of pointing finger, fingers and a lot of, uh, you're just trying to sell your RASP service, um, primarily because the contributors owned a, a RASP company, right? And if you're not familiar with RASP, gosh, it's a runtime application security protection. Is that right? I, I actually have to Google it. I think that might be it, but basically it's an agent that runs inside of an application and when an attacks, uh, detected, it shuts it down essentially and, and notifies it logs that that happened. Uh, there's a few companies that do that. Um, so that was one of the, that was one of the issues. The other was that um, really the, the, the metrics collection, like in terms of the actual hard data used was skewed. There's some long articles that are really good around that um, kind of showing uh, like, and Brian, um, Brian glass, had written a bunch of articles, long articles, really in-depth. And I say long, and what I really mean is in-depth. Like he really covered where the metric flaws, metrics flaws were, proposed some items. And he, and he also went a step further, and we should probably have him on at some point. He went a step further, and he actually helped OWASP fix this. So like kudos to him. Uh, so he didn't just complain or just point out. In fact, he, he never really complained. He just pointed out some facts, gave some alternatives, and actually worked uh, on it, on the initiative to, to kind of like fix the OWASP top 10. So those are the two issues. There's a third one that I wanted to bring up that was, oh gosh, it was, oh, right. It was the debate of, is this a compliance document? Meaning if you look at like the PCI standards, PC, PCI standards specifically often reference the OWASP top 10 in terms of like training do your assessments cover those items? Even if not specifically spelled out, it's the items on the OS top 10 that are used. Uh, pretty much across the board, compliance can or has pointed to the OS top 10. So a document that was more uh, uh, considered an awareness document by the community that built it became inadvertently a compliant or inadvertently, advertently, I don't know, but it became a compliance document. So the three things, the compliance versus awareness, the, the topics themselves, uh, and then, you know, where it was the data that was collected to build these topics sufficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I mean, that covers what went on, right? Um, and I, I already talked about, you know, in a little bit, the data that, you know, actually digging into it now, right? I feel... Like as someone in the community, I feel a lot better about what the OWASP top 10 represents and actually going in front of people and training them on it, right? Because it is like, oh, guess what? Yeah, injection, yeah, it's still a problem. It's not a common problem that we see anymore, but you know, it's still fairly critical if you can find it. Uh, but that being said, the other items that are on there, the fact that there is, you know, uh, what XML entity expansion, right? Hey, guess what? that's probably coming about more and more. And, you know, I have seen that a couple of times in assessments as opposed to, you know, CSRF. When was the last time we had an issue with CSRF? Okay. Uh, yeah. Everybody uses a framework nowadays. Uh, you know, if they don't implement it, it might be on one page 
and really the risk is pretty low. So does it does it warrant being on that list? Um, I know that top, you know, ten items is like this magic number that we can teach people about or hear talk about. Um, but realistically, it it has become a compliance list in, in my perspective, right? Um, and that's where I have a hard time with it in general is, hey, somebody wants OWASP top 10 training rather than security training, right? So, yeah, I totally agree with that. It becomes a, a, a check in the box versus like, okay, does, let's look at this. Does injection apply to, you know, if, if, if Evan was to bring in training, would he want injection to be covered? Would he want cross-site scripting be, to be covered? I mean, maybe, but, you know, What's, what are some other things here? Um, I mean, all of this stuff is, for the most part, this is pretty much the same, to be honest, looking at this list. I mean, insecure de- deserialization and XXE are new. Um, but, you know, maybe there's some more interesting things, some things that are more applicable specifically to the language and frameworks that you're you're working with, Evan, I would imagine. So I don't know how applicable. I'm reading it right now, yeah. the OWASP top 10. Um, like, I mean, I've actually, oh, sorry. What's up? No, I was going to say, you mentioned like authentication's pretty tested it pretty good there. Not a huge concern. Uh, yeah. I think broken authentication, I think is a real, real issue. I think like goes too far and talks about like and all that stuff. I think that's important too, but not super critical. Um, I like to look at this. Um, I don't think XXE, like, I don't know, when was the last time? I have not written an application in my life. Actually, that's not true. I have not recently written an application that talks anything XML. Um, so maybe in big enterprises, but sensitive data exposure, huge. Like, I think just data classification is a human problem and not a computer problem. And so I think it deserves to be on the OWASP top 10. Security misconfiguration, sure. XSS, maybe, maybe not in today with React. Insecure deserialization, we talked about that. Using components with well-known vulnerabilities. Gymnasium and GitHub are helping me. I don't use Gymnasium, but like you mentioned Gymnasium. Lots of these sub-dependency things. Like people are taking note of what sub-dependencies they have. And insufficient logging and monitoring, I think, is huge. Not everybody knows how many logins per second their website has and how many requests, authenticated requests per second versus unauthenticated requests per second they have during for anomalies and stuff. From a blue team perspective, that's immensely helpful from an auditing perspective and figuring out what's what. I mean, it's a must. But, like, I mean, cores falls under security misconfiguration, so that could be useful. So I guess it's kind of the... So, like, if someone came in and said, hey, you know, this is how you should hash, pa- hash passwords, you know, for broken authentication, would that be useful to you? If, uh, say it again, one more time. If someone came in and said, you know, here's, I'm going to ex- explain the difference between, like, MD5, bcrypt, et cetera, like, when, <laughs> what to use, what not to use, how to use it um, in terms of hashing uh, or encryption, whichever is relevant. For, specifically because I'm, I'm looking at broken authentication for context. Or would it be I think more... This is from a... Sorry. 
Uh, I, you were breaking up a second. So I started talking. This is from like a training perspective is what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, like if you're bringing someone for training, you know, what, uh, like what things would you focus on? I would love for someone to come in and say, like, if you talking about hashing and stuff, if you think this is necessary, like you definitely need to talk to a security person and a product person because this probably wrong path. Um, like anytime someone needs to roll out cryptography, it's like, it's, uh, but I do think like just regular developer, like leveling up our average developer's security posture. I think like the basics of crypto, I think just teaching them security, like this is the CIA triad. This is, um, I would, I would love to completely ignore the OWASP top 10 and like, this is CIA triad. This is like. This is what hashing is. This is encryption and like teach them the building blocks. And I think that'll go further than like arbitrary list people prepared uh, this year for issues. No, but I think that's, yeah, that's kind of the point, right? It's like, it's, if it's being used, like you have to follow that list in order to meet your compliance goals and you've got a budget and you can spend it on, you know, one assessment quarterly, one training yearly, whatever the case is, right? Mm -hmm. that's kind of the to me that's concerning i think it, by the way like i just want to say awesome job to those that maintain and contribute to the OWASP top 10 taking nothing away but in terms of it being a compliance doc there's no doubt that's what it's used for should it be yeah, yeah. i don't i don't i don't think so personally well and that's where i like the fact that you, I, you know, I finally did see, right, we're getting more generic in the OWASP top 10, right? Broken authorization or access control, logging and monitoring. I mean, right there we have AAA, right? Authentication, authorization, auditing. Um, that's Those are the basics. That's the CIA triangle that we're starting to talk about. It's not, uh, you know, so focused on these silos of vulnerabilities, even though those are still scattered throughout there. Um, but as someone who trains and someone who goes out and, you know, talks to people about security, it's hard to have a discussion because of the OWASP, the, because of the way the OWASP top 10 has been represented to them, right? It's like, oh, you have a web application. This is the stuff you have to worry about, right? Um, even though it, it ignores at times pretty critical vulnerabilities for your framework, right? You're not thinking about, you know, maybe mass assignment or something like that doesn't come up because somebody didn't bother to talk about it when they talked about access control or the other vulnerabilities that are there, that that becomes an issue. And that's where we, we fall down and that's where we have vulnerabilities. Um, I did want to point out that uh, Brian was talking about, uh, Brian Gray on the chat brought up that uh, there was just a vulnerability. Uh, Shibboleth, Shibboleth SSO was just crushed with crushed with DTD issues. Right? So that's those what XML. Is DTD? They are. Uh, that's the XML entity expansion stuff. Oh. I, I mean, so it's out there, but I think okay. a lot of those are more kind of web service based, like SOAP based systems, right? Soap. <laughs> They're still there. I, I mean, forgot about Enterprise, you. Soap. Enterprise still does XML, right? And I think that's where most of that happens. Get your wisdom on. Yep. Yeah, hey, it's it's, it's true like, that enterprises are using it. Uh, well, that doesn't surprise me. 
So does so does like stop posting shit to your source like your keys to source code repositories? Does that fall under sensitive data exposure? I think so. Generic. Uh, I I think also it's like um like privacy as well. I think that um I I think that will age well. Sensitive data exposure with GDPR coming out in the next couple months. Um, to the point where where like on whatever social media website or social programming website looking at you um <laughs> uh you can get like names and such it's i don't know if this is gdpr issue but um like i don't know sensitive data exposure will be massive with gdpr coming soon yep I'm trying to think of what else, like, cause I feel like a lot of the, uh, sorry, I'm rambling. I mean, uh, so, so Ken's just going to gonna make sounds now. And then, you know, <laughs> we're just going to cut it. Right. You know, it'll be him just start later. At, and it'll be over. Right? I can't read and think at the same time. I'm not that smart. So there you go. Sorry, I'm reading broken access control. That, that's what's that's what's tripping me up here. Yeah, so broken access control is the combination of what used to be um, multi mul uh, yeah, function level missing function level access control and insecure direct object reference. So basically, those authorization issues they're making in a broader category, right? Which I think is a really good. I mean, that's. Kind of why I mean that was why I was reading it was to figure out where authorization because I feel like authorization is one of the biggest problems that I see time and time again. So A five broken access control or uh, yeah broken access control. But I mean yeah like I think uh, so again kudos to because of who was it? It was Brian Glass, Andrew Vanderstock, and and someone. <laughs> There's somebody else I'm missing, but they did a lot of, yeah, there was a bit of drama with that. There's a lot of drama with that. Some people came out and said, Hey, don't, you know, don't be mean to my rasp friends. And, you know, others were like, no, they're trying to, uh, they're trying to make money. They're trying to make this cause it is a compliance thing. And so, uh, well, so it's used as a compliance document. So the argument was because it's used as a compliance document, putting that in there then requires uh, the product to be purchased, which then, you know, lines certain folks' coffers. So that was kind of the, the drama around that. And I think that those folks that, that I mentioned, and i sorry that I'm not remembering the third person, they came in and kind of uh, took out the drama if that makes sense, they like shifted it into, all right, we're going to make it about the data. And that was a really smart way to do it. Um, anything else on that topic? No, I don't, I, I don't think so. Right. Um, you know, like, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of how it's evolving. I don't necessarily think it applies as a, I mean, like anybody in the industry, like a compliance list, right? It should be more awareness-based. And the fact that it got pushed into compliance is, you know, a bad thing, but we have to deal with it, right? 
you just have to move on and try to try to expand it out to something that's greater than just that top 10 list. Anyway. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. If you disagree, send us an email, right? We'll have you on so you can talk about it. And maybe we'll have Evan on as well so you can argue about it with him. Right. I want somebody to just argue with Evan for an hour. Bring on uh, Chris Gates and we'll talk about remote work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Hey, while we're there, I mean, we, screw it. What, what's what in a in a short in a nutshell? What what's the uh, what's your opinion on that? Like, well, I mean, obviously it's not a, mm. a a great one, but like, or sorry, not saying your opinion isn't great. I'm saying it's not a positive. Uh, oh, I think you just said my opinion isn't great, but that's okay. <laughs> As speaking as a from a remote yeah. worker standpoint, sure. I think I I just think it's uh, really hard for smaller companies. I think Chris has Chris Gates specifically, who I argue with a lot about this. Um, and you and Neil, you guys have all worked at bigger companies where roles were more well defined, and you had real teams and like um the mystery of what you're going to do at work that day. Um. There's not that much mystery about what you're doing today and what you're doing tomorrow and like what's coming next week. I think if you're, I just think it doesn't work when your company is too small and there's a lot of things happening at once and you don't really know what is always happening because you really have to be in the room. And, um, but I do think it works when your company matures into that, like we can say, I want someone to do red team full time and we're going to figure out what their, um, what their like metrics are for success and their success criteria for their projects for the year. And they can do that remotely. It doesn't matter if they're in the office. I really just think it's a company maturity thing. And I think most companies in San Francisco are not there. Yeah. I um, mean, Google or Facebook or something massive. If you're talking about a 20, 10, 30, 40 person, well, 40 is getting, but if you're talking about like a 10, 20 person company that's kind of scrambling, it, I will say this, you're right about, so you're right about like a company that's scrambling to make it work and, you know, priority shift pretty quickly and things, things like that for, you know, Seth and I worked while well, we owned and managed, co-owned and managed a uh, consultancy that was distributed, but that was, um, it had its own challenges for keeping everyone apprised of what was going on uh, because things, yeah, happen rapidly. But what makes that easy from a consultant, makes it easier from a consultant standpoint is like what you said is that you've got an engage, you have a task, you have a, you're like, you have an engagement, right? And so you have a delivery, a deliverable at the end of that engagement. And it's pretty succinct. It's pretty clear cut on what you have to do and when you have to do it by. And then in terms of getting help, you know, you might want someone to like review a report or to you throw something into like, you know, Slack or whatever you're using and get some feedback on, Hey, what's this? What do you think of this? That's easy. But, um, like if you're trying to, um, do something where it's like your security team, I imagine, if you're a one, two, three person company, you don't know what's going on that day. Like you're probably responding 
uh, and trying to shovel in a little, I don't know, you could tell us more, but you're probably trying to get like a small amount of time in that week to like dedicated proactive tasks, but you're probably doing a lot of like what's going on and reactive kind of, um, meetings or, you know, what, what are we doing next? Or are you like, Hey, something weird happened and someone's reporting this and I, now I got to go off and look at this issue, see if it's an issue, audit, whatever. Oh, I've worked at, uh, now segments around a 200 head account and still I have, we call it a planning cycle. Every planning cycle, I have objectives, but there is generally seven to eight other things going on at once that just happen. And at Cloudflare, Cloudflare got to be about 550-ish by the time I left. It was things coming up that were unexpected. And so I really think that if I had not been I would have had no idea. And security just would not have been engaged with these, um, was engaged in helping on. And so some of that just comes from like being proactive and being willing to throw yourself in that. And I think that's a lot harder when you're remote. I think if you, if you're a smaller company and even if you're three people, like you said, or, um, you've got, you're just struggling to make it or 40 people or whatever. It's, um, I think it really comes down to how you plan and how you, um, how, how things happen there. And, um, I just, I just think that in Silicon Valley, the most successful companies are the ones that like, and that type of people, it's hard to figure out a proper planning cycle and stuff. So I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not against remote work. I think it's great. I just think you really have to be in a situation where you say, okay, this remote worker is going to do, do X. This remote worker is going to do Y. Yeah. And you uh Well, I mean, if the majority of the company is in one spot, if you get like 39 out of 50 people or 45 out of 50 people in one spot and then you've got a couple you got a few remote people, then yeah, then you're going to you're going to have an issue for sh or it could yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a problem potentially, but um, maybe, like maybe for, the best way, way to describe it. Oh, sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say that basically, and I get, I'm guessing my Wi-Fi isn't great tonight. And sorry about that. But um, uh, what I was just going to kind of say is that we mentioned earlier the talent issue, and like that's always been my biggest argument for it is that finding talent where you live or where your office is. I mean, is that really the best place that, I mean, just cause they live within a certain proximity. And even if you're willing to, um, even if you're willing, even if you, you say like, Hey, we're willing to pay you more and relocate you. I'm not moving to fucking San Francisco. No offense, Evan, but no, no fucking thank you. No way. Am I doing that? Ever. <laughs> No way. I'm a grown up with adults. Not to say you aren't, uh, or sorry, a grown up with kids. You know, I, I got, I got like, I can't. No, I'm certainly I got, like, not a grown up. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just saying I, I have, you know, I have a mortgage. I have, I have, uh, you know, I have a kid. I have my, my life that I lead and there's no way that you're going to convince me to go somewhere and ride a bike to work and, you know, mm -hmm. all that. So no, thanks. But I, 
I actually, I don't know. I think the right way to describe it is like a cultural decision from the company. Like the company is going to say that remote work is important for them and figure out how to make it work um, company-wide. And um, I think also if you're going to have a lot of offices, remote work, once you get to a point where you have a lot of offices, remote work is not that different from a remote office. Yeah. I think once you double down on that, um, once you get to that point, then it's time to like really make remote work uh, a feasible thing where like people, everybody has a task and like it, it shouldn't be a problem if somebody wants to be remote anymore. So it's not, a, it's not an easy thing. And like, and that's, I, I mean, and honestly, from the remote worker perspective, not everybody's cut out for it, right? Not everybody can dedicate their time. Not everybody can slice it up like they probably should. Um, but it becomes obvious fairly quickly, right? Um, and, you know, and I've, like, I've been the first remote worker for an organization before. And, man, that sucked, right? Like, just not being on the ground, people not scheduling bridges and things like that, right? It's like, just to get your work done, it, you know, I found that I had to go on site, right? every other week just to actually get work done because it wasn't, they weren't set up for it. It took them a good six months or whatever to figure out how to support me. Not necessarily just like from a technical perspective, but from an organization perspective, they wanted to go that direction, but being the guinea pig is not necessarily a fun thing either. Yeah. So, so I, I, I can understand exactly what you're saying. That being said, you know, if you if you happen to run a company that's all based on selling a product to su- support remote work, <laughs> I knew this was going to come up. Remote workers. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I like I'm not looking at anybody specific. Yeah, but yeah, I think if your whole company is based around the principle of giving people an ability to chat remotely, it's pretty insane to require you to be in an HQ. Like if your product is at all centered around re- remote companies, you're insane if you think people want to come work at your office. So I, I think Slack just hit that point where they have tons of offices now. I think now it's a uh, now that is inexcusable. But for a long time, I think that's like totally reasonable. Like, well, that's a fair point. I mean, that's that's why we wanted you on. We wanted some somebody yeah. else's opinion, someone else's point of view. So we appreciate you giving that. <laughs> Well, sweet. Well, guys, we've been going for almost an hour and a half, so I think we'll probably cut it. So, All right. Guys. Thanks, Evan. Thoughts, Evan? Oh, sorry. Thanks for having me. No, just, yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It's, it's always good chatting. Next time we'll do it in person somewhere, right? Definitely. That'd be good. Cool. Well, we'll uh, this will just for those that are still watching or those that watch later, we'll keep doing it every Tuesday uh, weekly. And um, I don't know. I actually don't know who next week's guests is, or if we have one, um, there's a list. We have a list of people that want to talk. I just, I haven't scheduled them. So we'll, we'll see um, either way. Yeah. I like that idea. Evan. getting the, uh, the gin and juice uh, folks. Uh, so yeah. Anyways, cool. Anything else, Seth? No, nothing for me. Uh, you know, we'll announce next week's lineup uh, once we have it. And 
but we'll be back. All right. I'm going to stop the broadcast. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Later. Thanks.